Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, the Forex industry, which is people punting on the movement of currencies, basically, that turns over $2.5 quadrillion each year, and 88% of those trades involve the US dollar. That's a bit of a problem for the US, surely, because their currency is valued more for its importance to Forex traders than it is representative of the economy that sits behind it. So no wonder the US gets upset when they see other currencies losing value against them, making US exports more expensive and foreign imports cheaper. But can they do anything about it today currency wars how they're fought and who ultimately wins apart from the forex traders of course it's the debunking economics podcast with professor steve keen i'm phil dobby welcome along so remember donald trump we all remember him he uh, repeatedly accused china of manipulating its currency during his uh, his reign in the United States. The yuan went from being worth about 16 US cents down to being worth 14 US cents. Not a huge move, but it did mean that it was cheaper for people to buy stuff from China, so it helped with China's exports. So, Steve, I mean, first of all, did Donald Trump have a, have a point? Was this currency manipulation? And how do you even go about manipulating your currency to devalue it, if that's what they were doing? Oh, well, look, all uh, national governments... Uh, you know, through the, the through their treasury, through the central bank, all of them are involved in manipulating their own currencies. So, you know, uh, it, it's the pot calling the kettle black in the case of Donald Trump because the United States is just as likely to do it, though it has less lead because it's the international uh, exchange currency. But they, they all get involved in dirty floats uh, when they want to uh, have, have some impact upon their, um, their uh, balance of payments. Uh, all their export competitiveness, they'll all get involved in buying and selling their own currency and international currency markets. Uh, but it, it's people are still thinking about this like it's back in the days of the gold standard. Uh, and, mm. and that's one reason why you get uh, uh, ridiculous outcomes uh, out, out of this, uh, because people are ex- expecting you can, um, you know, fight against a central bank. Uh, and that's only going to work if there's something happening to their trade, trading account that means they're forever running out of their own dollars, so their currency is becoming more and more vulnerable. Places like Turkey, for example, the people have tried yeah. try to bet against Japan, and they call that particular trade the widowmaker. Right. Please explain. Because it sends a person to do it bankrupt, and they commit suicide. Oh, oh, right. The, nice. Yeah. Okay. And in the UK, it was the same deal, wasn't it? If we go back to 1964, which was incidentally the year I was born, uh, during the Labour government mm. then, uh, they had a deficit of 800 million. They devalued because of that. They were worried about speculation against the pound. They were worried about losing their foreign currency reserves. Uh, and yeah, it was fixed currencies in those days. So they moved sterling to, they devalued it to a new a new fixed parity with the US dollar of $2.40. Yeah. And the reason it was, the, things are very different under a floating exchange 
exchange rates as opposed to fixed exchange rates uh, is that you, when you fix your exchange rate to something, whether that's somebody else's currency or it's gold, uh, then you can run out of somebody else's currency or gold and be forced to devalue. And that's, of course, what uh, George Soros used. Uh, Soros was the, main, was the main speculative player back in 64 against mm. the British pound. Now, I think you're getting confused when Britain came out of the exchange rate mechanism, which was, what, 1991, early 90s. And uh, uh, I think he shorted it because he knew that Britain would be leaving and therefore the pound would, would devalue as it came out. So it was sort of leaving the ties of the exchange rate mechanism. And that's, uh, that's how he played. Uh, and, the, and the volume of this, this is also part of the, part of the trick. Uh, when you have a, um, a, a fixed exchange rate, you also have, in effect, a control on how much of your own currency you can pr- produce. Um, so Soros effectively could borrow money to lever up his position against the uh, the British pound. He could borrow British pounds to be able to gamble against the British pound. That sort of thing. Borrow your American dollars as well. Whatever whatever mechanism he used. Uh, and then when they were forced to devalue, bang, he came out massively ahead. Um, and and that's where his fortune came from. Uh, so that sort of thing has happened had done numerous times under fixed exchange rates. Two others that are worth mentioning are Australia had a devaluation, I think about a 17.5% under Keating uh, for the same reason, running a 6% balance of trade deficit. And then he said, okay, we're going to devalue by 17.5%, which you could do. And of course, that then, you know, made Australian exports more competitive, but those effects take a hell of a long time to work through. The classic to me was actually the the actual break from the gold standard itself under Nixon, which is 1971, uh, because America was running a trade deficit. And that meant that American dollars were turning up in particularly Europe. And the most aggressive person in Europe at the time was Charles de Gaulle, president. Of, was it president or premier of France? But he was president, wasn't he? Yeah. President of France, yeah. And he basically threatened to bring all those American dollars and deposit them at Fort Knox in return for $35, uh, one ounce of gold per $35. And the threat of that happening is what led to Nixon um, breaking the gold standard. But what a lot of people don't know, and this this came out in a government report at the time, a congressional report, uh, because companies that are buying and selling internationally, including, of course, American corporations, uh, can change their terms of payment. And, you know, pay in 30 days, pay in 60 days. You're, you're a freelancer. You know this sort of yeah, stuff, yeah. don't you? Yeah, yeah. It yeah, doesn't, yeah, matter. Yeah. doesn't matter what you ask. They're never going to pay on that date. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there are some exceptions. But well, of hey, course. Hey, yeah. About them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so what, 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 what then happened was American corporations expected the American currency to devalue. So in, in their own dealings with their own subsidiaries overseas, so like, for example, let's say Ford America to Ford Australia, they basically, uh, basically said, uh, you know, I'm actually, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we pay, pay, don't you know, pay us in it. We're going to pay you in advance in American dollars and take your time to pay us back in Australian mm. effectively. And what that meant was the scale of, of, of multinational, American-owned multinational corporations manipulating their payment terms was actually what caused the rapid fall in the uh, the stocks of, of American dollars, you know, they're, they're basically American dollars going offshore because of it. Um, 
and and enforce the hand of the Americans on the devaluation. So the reason that America devalued wasn't so much good oil, it was actually American corporations themselves. So it's all, I mean, that is just another form of speculation, isn't it, really? And, and yeah. So yeah. is that, so that was the danger of fixed exchange rates. So this idea of speculation is that it, it is, is part of the reasoning behind floating exchange rates, that you get rid of that, that it's, uh, you can't speculate because you're not, uh, you know, because you've got a movable feast. It's harder to tell which way currencies are going to well, go. You can, you can speculate but uh less but but it, less it, extreme. It, it's a much more it's a much more dangerous game mm. uh, and and of course now once you've uh, uh you know meant that you have no link between your currency and anything else fixed whether that's a a basket of currencies like Keynes's idea of the Bancor or the American dollar because it's the international reserve currency or a commodity like gold. Once you don't have that link, then the central bank, which which are involved in buying and selling its own currencies and other currencies all the time, uh, have an unlimited capacity to buy in their own currency. Yeah. So that that means that you're basically you're betting against the central bank. Now, if the central bank itself has to have reserves of other currencies and it's running out of those, then that ultimately means the central bank can be weakened by it and, and the country government itself can find, like countries like Argentina, uh, when they issue bonds in their own currency, they've got to offer enormous interest rates or they offer uh, bonds in um, another currency like American, the American dollar with much lower interest rates but a higher, well, Potential, but a higher potential rate of default, uh, because to get the American dollars to pay you, they've got to actually export Argentinian goods to get you know Argentinian American dollars back in return for stuff made with Argentinian pesos, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that therefore means that they're very vulnerable, so uh, they can be forced to devalue. And therefore, when they try to sell their bonds, even if they're denominated in American dollars, they've got to offer very high interest rates to cover, cover that. Uh, potential for default, which buyers are factoring into their purchase price. Right. Um, so, but, that, but if you look at, you know, yeah, that becomes a reason then not to have actually in some of these countries floating exchange rates. Then wouldn't they be better off? Uh, you know, okay, there's the, the the danger of speculation, but wouldn't they be better off being pegged to another currency? Which is why, of course, you well, know, that, we're seeing in some countries they, you know, they almost abandon their own currencies and they just using the U.S. dollar. Well, that's happened in Ecuador, for example, yeah. and that was uh, again. Uh, I mean, the Ecuador is a classic case because, I mean, you look at it, if you look at it with a naive, uh, you know, uh, free market type orientation, then you can say, oh, yeah, the, you know, the Ecuadorians having, they had runaway inflation, they pegged it to the dollar and that stabilised everything and that's hunky-dory and therefore we shouldn't have government involvement. In fact, one reason why Ecuador turned so politically left at the time was that, the, the you know, I don't know the story in, in great detail, but I've heard this through my own Ecuadorian contacts in the government at the time, uh, that uh, the banks, them, the private banks, said, oh, you've got to, you've got to resources. We need these dollars to um, be able to meet our own commitments." And they gave them the money, and uh, some of the people involved in this absconded to a nice little foreign country called Florida, <laughs> and and that then bankrupted the entire economy, and that forced the hand of uh, dollarization. So uh, it was it was far from a being a free market trick; it was a, a con job by the banking class. Yeah, and also, I mean, it, even if that wasn't happening, it would be very difficult, wouldn't it, if you've not got control over your uh, over your own currency to control your own employment, for example. I mean, well, the, the the ability of uh, being able to 
minute if we call it currency manipulation but adjust uh, the value of your own currency by whatever means um, then you know you could do it to make cheap uh, cheaper exports so you can ensure more people have jobs and you know why shouldn't you do that yeah and this this is the part of the problem that I mean the whole vision of free trade is sort of you know this idea of a level playing field and all those sort of nice pieces of neoclassical economic jargon we get thrown at us uh, in fact all countries are attempting to do to to develop or you know with your third world country you're trying to develop or if you're a western country you're trying to grow faster all the you know the growthism that dominates how uh, politicians and economists think um, and in that world yeah you're going to use anything you can um, and then of course the the, uh, the the whole idea of these agreements is to limit your capacity to do that but you're living in a in a regime with floating exchange rates where those limits are no longer as hard as they were in the gold standard days yeah which is why emerging markets are, are struggling to survive aren't they because they have this this volatility uh, particularly you know during these covid years uh, and uh, you know they they're the whim of the uh, the strength or otherwise of the US dollar i mean the US dollar is determining basically how much most currencies around the world are worth. Yeah, but you also get international uh, lending. I mean, that that matters if you have if you if part of your construction costs are going to be imports, then you're going to need foreign foreign money to to do the building. Um, and this can lead to things like uh, like a, a, a first of all a runaway credit bubble. Now this I mean, the country I'm living in right now, Thailand, is a classic instance of that. Back in '97, uh, there was an enormous level of real estate speculation here. A lot of it financed by overseas loans. Ditto in Indonesia as well. And at the same time, the money that was coming in was being siphoned off into wealthy bank accounts, particularly in Indonesia. Um, so the money wasn't turning up in more productive capacity. The do- dollars were coming in and going into a, a, a nice, comfortable bank account somewhere in the Bahamas, most likely, not actually de- in causing the development was supposed to happen. And yet the country itself was then on the nose for having to repay the debt in American dollars. And you had, I think in the case of the Indonesian rupiah, I think it fell 90% in one day. Mm. But that's and, bad. And but, after, but that's yeah. just bad uh, foreign investment policy, isn't it? I mean, if if money is coming in to buy real estate, which is then uh, finding its way going out of the country uh, in, into other places, that must be because the developers are foreign owners, surely. Not no, not foreign owners, domestic wealthy people who put the money aside. I mean, no. I remember having a meeting. This is way back in the seventies. I think it was the 70s, maybe in the early 80s, uh, with a member of the Argentinian consulate. And at the time, the, overs- the foreign debt of Argentina was about 40 billion US dollars. And he said to me that we reckon that's roughly the amount of money, American dollars in, in the bank accounts of, uh, of wealthy Argentinians, overseas bank accounts of wealthy Argentinians. So a lot of what turns up as uh, you know a, a balance of payments deficit or a, uh, a currency shortage is often the rich uh, hoarding this money themselves right so people have bought them so foreign money is coming in to, to buy those mm. properties so you've got a balance of trade uh, mm. is looking positive from that but you're saying it's just going straight it's out again payments about balance yeah, of payments I mean, like this, this, this is I mean uh, it, one of my uh, Patreon followers is always having a go at me to say you've got to include modelling fraud in your uh, <laughs> in your Minsky models and he's mm. dead right mm. I mean you know there, there's an enormous amount of you know, a set of books for the taxman a set of books for the public and a set of books for the people inside and a, a lot of the money that turns up is actually siphoned off. It doesn't actually go to its supposed destination. Um, you know the old story, the trickle. My little line about trickle down. You've got used to that one yet? Uh, give it, give it to me again. Uh, um, trickle down is actually properly. It's actually pronounced trickle down. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you know, what you have is that the money uh, is might be borrowed by a corporation. It can be siphoned off by the uh, the upper echelons of the, of the corporation. You know, I've, I've, actually, Donald Trump would know a lot about this. Uh, let's let's buy a gold toilet. Mm. Yeah. Or even like the only in movie Independence Day when when they revealed uh, that uh, what is it called Area Fifty One actually exists to the to the pro, to the uh, the president and he says how did you people pay for all this stuff and the um, uh, the the father of the the star of the show says you didn't really think they paid two hundred thousand dollars for a screwdriver did you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there's there's plenty of ways to cook the books, and mm. this again, coming back to the days of Nixon and the devaluation, the the break from the gold standard in '71, transfer pricing was a huge part of what actually caused the breakdown. You you you, you if you wanted to send American dollars offshore, then you paid you paid more than you should for for bringing an import in and charge you know. And, and, and consequently, you transferred money from American dollars got transferred from America itself to um, a, a third country, let's say Australia. And then when the devaluation came, occurred, you brought those dollars back on shore again and you made a profit. So and that's how companies are doing it. But um, but what about central banks and governments then? Because I mean, why aren't we seeing more currency wars going on? Because I would have thought it would be in everyone's interest unless they've got the, you know, this whole disbelief that they're, they're a strong country if they've got a strong currency. I would have thought most people would say, particularly if they're export nations, well, we want to make our, our exports cheaper. We can live with, uh, you know, more expensive imports because we'll be we'll try and be as, as reliant as we can on on domestic produce. Uh, but if you're an export nation, it'd be in your interest to keep your exchange rate as low as possible, wouldn't it? Yeah, and and you and you do get central banks attempting that with 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 um, you know some some level of restraint. Uh, but yeah, you, you, they're buying and selling their own currency all the time, mm. and it's a question of whether it. I mean, if you do have central bank independence, then that is rather harder to do. Um, but uh, you know, discretionary purchases and sales of bonds and so on, all this sort of stuff can be done to try to manipulate from the um, from the um, country, the country, the government's perspective. Uh, but you also get people trying to speculate against, say, like the Japanese. Uh, uh, yen, and that's what's called the widowmaker trade, because uh, people normally, you know, mainstream economic thinkers believe that governments can't repay their debt. So they see America, Japan, you know, it went from I think government debt being about forty percent of GDP in nineteen ninety to two hundred and fifty percent now, and they think, well, that's got to be a collapse in the yen, you know. So I'm going to short the yen, blah blah blah, and the yen sails merrily on because governments have an unlimited capacity to create their own currency, and that's what's going on with the level of deficit spending in Japan. The real danger is whether you're running a trade deficit or not. And well, I just you know, I think Japan's still managing a surplus. Yeah, it is, um, and, and so it's and it's. Very much the safe haven currency as well. If uh, yeah, if, yeah. if things are going to shit, yeah, everyone buys the yen because, well, I yeah. guess because they've got that uh, because they have that big trade surplus. Yeah, and then like I, I have friends who uh, have, have uh, software packages that are designed to try to exploit um, emergent trends that, that are turning up in the in the data and foreign exchange markets. And I mean, I'm not I'm, I don't follow these things closely enough to be anything resembling an expert on it. But I think the volume of foreign exchange markets far exceeds the volume of stock exchange trades mm. and uh, in that volume you can get particular um, beliefs becoming dominant amongst the traders they, they are classically herd animals 
Um, and then algorithms can say, well, here's a period where I can, you know, go with the herd and therefore I can, I can make a gain while the herd makes a gain, but then I can go against it when, the, when, it, when my algorithm tells me a break is coming up and I then jump ahead before the, the break, whether that's up or down occurs, you know, going short or long as is necessary yep. and making money of it. That's actually where my ex-PhD student, uh, Tim Gooding, has got a nice little um, um, genetic algorithm doing it. And then when you look at it, you end up with a stage where the vast, quite possibly the, the majority of trades on these markets end up being done by algorithms, which which are all competing against each other, which is crazy. <laughs> but, you know, keeps a lot of people in a job, Steve. That's uh, that's the yeah, important yeah. thing. Uh, but what about um, if, you, I mean, talking about money creation by government, so, for example, the situation in Japan, if you've got more of a currency, then, you know, the argument would be that if, the, you know, if, you, if you're increasing the supply, then that's going yep. to uh, that, weaken the value of each one of whatever it is. Uh, and uh, so, that, so that's going to change your uh, the, the, the your exchange rate. And then, if if you were to use that money to, for example, buy up the US dollar, I mean, that would presumably push the value of the US dollar up, and so weaken your currency even further. Is that the sort of game that's played? That's the sort of game that's played. But I mean, you you have got an enormous volume of speculative traders trading against each other, all trying to come out ahead on right. the one market. So it doesn't matter what the and government tries. If the government says, well, that's the policy we're going to do, there's going to be someone trading against you, uh, yeah, putting, yeah. scuppering your plans. And, you, right. and then you've got, and in that sense, you can say you've got a government responsibility to try to counter those actions. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of the actions that governments do are, are seen as being defensive for their currency rather than aggressive against so on that other base, countries. So on that basis, can anyone really be accused of manipulating their currency? Because whatever they try to do, there'll always be some trying to do the opposite yeah yeah it's it's if, you, if you're not in it you're going to get you're going to lose the game if you're not in the game you mm. might lose if you are in it as well but for that reason this is going to continue happening and all this sort of stuff you know claims by countries that are, they're doing it on a, on a volume of effectively sour grapes by the losers uh, but like america has been running uh, you know a, a constant trade deficit or a growing trade deficit ever since the 1970s. And a lot of this, again, is the fault of American corporations moving production offshore. Yeah. Um, and then as a result of that, of course, you've got to buy more imports because what you used to produce domestically, you've now, you now import. Then they manipulate that again through transfer pricing arrangements. So they're doing everything they can for their own advantage. And of course, the country itself ends up, you know, effectively being screwed by the actions of its own, its own uh, corporations. And yet still, you know, the wealthiest country there is is uh, with, you know, arguably the highest standard of living. Um, so you could say, well, it's not doing them any damage, is it? Well, uh, you talk to, going to have a trip to the Rust Belt one of these days and ask anybody that question as they, as they queue up at the, uh, at the what, what passes for welfare in America. I mean, I, I think a huge part of the... Um, uh, the support for Trump actually came from people who were effectively disenfranchised and, and disemployed by these processes. And... Uh, and, and rather than saying it's the corporation that's taken our, our jobs offshore that's, that are to blame and attacking them, they attack the Mexicans uh, who, who come in and work in the, in the, in the low, in the low you know, truly low paid uh, and, and low uh, parts of the industry, the fruit picking and things like that. Um, and they attack them and you get the racism that ends up supporting Trump. But the real, the real enemy isn't the Mexican coming in at the bottom of the feeding stack. It's the American, uh, you know, it's the capitalists at the top uh, exploiting the, the differences between American and originally Chinese and now American and Vietnamese wages uh, that's really at fault. And that's meant, of course, less investment in America itself, a rundown of its productive capacity um, and, you know, yet more dumbing down of a dumb country. 
So maybe, uh, well, I mean, beautiful people, of course. You know, let's not let's not let's, yeah, let's not relegate them to would, would a dumb like country. For, for our Americans would, would listening, like, would you we like love fries you. With that, <laughs> um, sorry. The, yeah, the, um, but if, I mean, I must probably throw a line in. My ex-American, ex-American wife. Sorry, American ex-wife. That's probably a better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, um, uh, one one of her friends in the states. Uh, like her was an actress, actress, and she was uh, starred in a, a a review off Broadway, which I absolutely loved the title of, and it was "What's a nice country like you doing in a state like this?" <laughs> so, uh, look, if America had spent more time uh, actually manipulating car- its own currency rather than talking about other people manipulating currencies, maybe it'd be better off. Because I mean, surely there, there would be an enormous incentive if you've got, if you're the you know the, the wealthiest country in the world uh, with the most powerful country in the world, and you're concerned about the uh, the, the fact that people are buying too many goods from overseas uh, then and, and you're not shipping enough of your own stuff overseas, then surely, you know, prime opportunity for you to say, well, okay, let's try and devalue but, the US dollar. But the trouble is you overvalue the US dollar by being the reserve currency. And this right. is the classic trap that Americans have never really got their heads around because it's, I mean, you know, some Americans, yes, okay. But the, it all began in forty in, in 44, the Bretton Woods Agreement, uh, when Keynes was arguing for the Bancor for international trade and the American delegation led by, and I can't think of his last name, but his first name, his, first, his last name was White, um, uh, saying that uh, we, we don't want a, an invented currency to be the currency of international trade. We want it to be the American dollar, which, of course, was taking the place of the British pound before Dexter mm. White, Harvey, Harry, Harry Dexter White. Um, taking the place of the, with the British pound used to be the currency for international trade, and then they said no, we wanted it to be a cane, so let's make it the Bancor, and they said let's make it the American dollar. The trouble with making your national currency the currency for international trade is that every, therefore, every country in the world has a demand for your currency yeah. Yeah. In, in, above and beyond the demand for your goods. And yeah. what that means because they is, want because they want central banks want it in reserve because it's seen as a safe currency to, yeah. you, to you, hold. Yeah. yeah. You, You've got you've got to have American dollars. You don't have to have Australian dollars, but you definitely have American dollars. So what that means is your currency is overvalued, which means your manufacturing sector, your your export sector, will will fail, and you're likely bring a trade deficit. This is actually Yanis Varoufakis's analysis of the breakdown of, of Western neoliberalism, really, which he called the uh, the the, uh, the the Minotaur. Um, is this this you know, overvaluation of the dollar, meaning that you had to have uh, uh, America was therefore uh, buying imports from Europe, which enabled Europe to, to reindustrialize after the Second World War. But then that trade broke down when America became worried about its own trade deficit. Right. And there's nothing you can do on that, because if they try to devalue, then everyone would just say overseas, oh, well, let's buy up more US dollars. Yeah, now exactly. They're, now they're cheaper. Yeah. So it's just going to balance itself out. There's nothing they can do to get themselves out of that situation. Then you've got yeah. other countries as well, which are reliant on the US dollar to uh, almost like a quasi local currency, not just the countries that are, you know, having to use the US dollar because their own currencies basically collapse. But you've got uh, a lot of tourist destinations in the Caribbean where, you know, places where Americans also retire to. And a lot of those are using the US dollar in shops. I'm not sure. Mm. What does that do to local currencies? Because it makes it very, it would make those local currencies, well, it would make everything very expensive, presumably, and make it very difficult for those those countries to develop their own economic policies. They, they're basically 
tied to the US. Yep. I mean, they were the old classic song, drinking yum, rum and Coca-Cola, working <laughs> for the Yankee dollar. And that's, mm. you know, mm. pardon that's... my lousy singing again. <laughs> yeah, it I mean, is lousy. Lost a few, lost a few yeah. subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, so long as we promise never to do it again, I think we can keep Okay, going. never to do it again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, but I mean, and I guess that's why these countries will never be any richer than they than they currently are. I mean, they're rich for people renting out accommodation to, to Americans, but they're never going to develop any other trade. Yeah, whereas we get countries that, you know, have restrict their imports, uh, which includes countries like Japan, Korea, China, uh, and, and force their own manufacturers to industrialise and replace imports as fast as possible. And, and that really has been the engine of growth. This is the opposite of free trade, of course. Uh, but when, when you take a look at empirically at it, and this is why people like Danny Roddick have done very well, um, the, the true, true way to industrialisation does involve protecting domestic industries, but also forcing them to develop at a rapid pace and then trying to have a trade surplus. Mm-hmm. And this whole pressure uh, it just means you, you, you have to have some rules of international uh, engagement in international trade because it's in everybody's interest to break the rules. Yeah. So that was, it was really imperialism, wasn't it? The American part. It was, they couldn't bear the idea that, uh, or here was an opportunity to grab their currency as being the world reserve. And that was seen as a good thing. And, you know, they probably thought that a strong currency is a good thing. Exactly. As well. Yeah. And I mean, Mussolini thought the same, <laughs> same thing, didn't he? Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the lira went up in value, exports fell. They were largely agricultural. So they sort of actually managed to get through the, uh, uh, the Great Depression better than most because they became came more uh, domestically focused, I guess. So, yeah. I, you know, and that's, you know, and you've talked in the past about how, uh, you know, in Japan as well, very much a domestic focus helped their, their, their industry to grow. So actually, uh, I mean, the, the, there's that part to play in currencies as well. Do you actually use it as a way of uh, not closing your borders, but, but having more of a domestic focus? Yeah. And like, I think I've actually forgotten the exact number that the Japanese yen began at after the Second World War, but I think it was 360 yen to the dollar mm. uh, was where it began. Now, over time, it became less than 100 to the dollar. I'm not certain. I have no idea what the ratio is today. Um, but that really reflected the growth and the industrial strength of Japan. So you do want an appreciating dollar, uh, appreciating currency, if that comes out of your own economy, becoming stronger and more industrialized over time. Uh, but the, at the same point, if you want to promote your exports, then it's better if your currency is cheaper. So, uh, you know, there's all these tensions. Uh, you, you want to manipulate down in the short run and, and benefit from growth in the long uh, growth in it over, over time. So... We, it'd be a great system, it. though, wouldn't it? It would work. It would balance itself out because obviously it's a globally it's a zero sum game. It would work if it was just the value of the goods you're producing. It related to your to your uh, to your you know the amount of international trade you're doing, the value you're placing on those. It would sort of balance itself out if there was no such thing as speculators. It would be a great system, wouldn't it? Yeah, let's move to a planet without speculators. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, I must mention a good mate of mine on this front, John Harvey. Um, John's a, a post-Keynesian economist in, in, uh, in the university in Texas. And he did a lovely analysis where he said the, the standard analysis of currency valuations, ye, ye old supply and demand curves, but in relation to using uh, the money to buy and sell goods. And he said, if you actually look at the volume of trade that's 
of, of currency purchases that go on for trade compared to the volume that go on for speculation. Your little graphs over here on the left-hand side, it's about, you know, about you know, one centimetre across, and at the other side of the page, there's the actual scale of demand, you know, 60, 50, 30 centimetres away, uh, because it's you know, 30 times as much trade in currencies driven by speculation as there is tra- uh, trade in currencies driven by the need to finance trade. So it's the, the ups and downs of the speculative side of things that dominate far more the, the valuation. Uh, and, and then that, again, for most currencies, will swamp, uh, again, what the central banks can do to control it. So often it's the central banks trying to you know, balance the damaging impact of, of that volatility in foreign exchange uh, that gets them into the market. And then you've got you know some people with unlimited pockets uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a mess. And if only we had, if only Harry Dexter White had either a had a brain, uh, or b had had a, had an aneurysm, uh, we might have got Keynes's ideas, and we would not be having this conversation, which would be a, that would be a much better planet to be on. Well, will Keynes's ideas come to the fore if we get a uh, a global digital currency? I mean, could that be where we get? I mean, there's lots of central banks obviously talking about digital currencies, but they're talking about them as local digital currencies. Oh. But there's also the danger, isn't there? Is we, you know, st- we start to find that we're buying everything off Amazon. Uh, that Amazon says, "Hey, we've created our own currency now, so to make it easier for you to trade with us, so you we, we can bypass all those nasty." Uh, uh, central banks and all your local taxes and local government policies um, just by using Amazon dollars. Uh, you know, that that would, uh, th- that destroys local economies, doesn't it, really? It puts all the power in one company. And obviously, we're going we're to regulate as hard as we can against that. But it's a worry, isn't it? The, the, it the is, influence it of digital. It is a worry. Yeah. I mean, for example, there's a country, I haven't had a chance to check it out myself because when I tried to install it on my phone, it actually failed to install. But there's a company called Mobi, M-O-B-I, mm. uh, which is trying to do precisely that and create a digital currency that they want to use for international exchange. Uh, and a lot of this is actually bypassing SWIFT, which is the... Um, a telecommunication system for international banking system, which dates back to the days of, you know, literally you know, uh, almost Moore's code in how it's structured and is quite expensive and slow. Uh, so they're trying to take over there and effectively create a, a digital currency, which is used for international trade. Yeah. And th- but then we're all going to be like greases within the EU. You've, you've got absolutely no control over your own economy. No, because you can still produce your own domestic currency. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's going to have volatility with the international side. But again, I mean, the international side of your economy is rarely more than 20% of the economy. There's some, some countries where that's the case. But America is, is the world's largest corp- country economically, is still um, uh, you know, has a relatively small uh, amount of imports and exports, even with the amount of production they've sent offshore, whereas countries... Uh, further down the pecking order, I think Thailand is partially one of those. About 20% of its uh, economy came from tourism, which is why it's suffering so badly uh, during COVID. Um, so but the, the, the stronger your own domestic economy is, the less you need to worry about how much does it cost you to import goods if you can manufacture them locally anyway. But if you, if, if you had the choice, if I had the choice between buying something in Amazon dollars and buying something in a pound uh, in sterling, and it was a pair of shoes that was made in, uh, and I could buy it from Thailand on Amazon for 
two Amazon dollars, which would be worth about 20 quid, but it would cost me 10 times more to buy it in UK pounds. Then presumably the UK pound would, because there'd be so much volume going through the Amazon dollars, the UK pound would have to devalue to try, you know, would it impact the exchange rate? It would operate like a dominant currency, wouldn't it? It would be the currency that's accounting for 50% of the world's transactions, perhaps. Um, well, it is possible that, um, yeah, that, that sort of effect can apply. Um, and, and that's one the reason. The Amazon dollar becomes the US dollar, it becomes yeah. the new reserve currency. Yeah, but, uh, and, and that becomes a question, should you leave that to being something which is controlled by a private company? Uh, mm. or, or, do you, um, or, or do you create an international system like the Bancor uh, that, that uh, uh, everybody is fixed to that particular currency and you then, as Keynes wanted to do, uh, have a, a form of, of semi-fixed currencies where if you're running a trade deficit, and that's the situation you're showing with the uh, uh, UK uh, people buying Thai shoes through the Amazon dollar, then yes, the UK would be forced to devalue. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Keynes's idea was the countries running a surplus would be forced to... Uh, both purchase more goods uh, from overseas mm. uh, and also uh, they were taxed on the surplus. The surplus was to be limited, I think, to... I think Keynes was trying to limit trade surpluses to no more than 2% of GDP, may have even been smaller. Now, part of the argument for floating exchange rates was, oh, we have floating exchange rates, uh, it'll all be caught by the... Uh, all, all international volatility will fall down into price volatility and trade will be balanced. Well, that's garbage uh, empirically. We, we've got trade... You know, the, that, that idea would say the trade deficits would be on average zero. Well, on average, trade deficits and surpluses, on average, at least 3% of GDP, probably 4 Five percent of GDP. Countries like China, Germany, Japan are running surpluses of the order of ten percent of GDP, and have been doing it for decades. So the whole idea that the price system would uh, eliminate those differences has been proven to be nonsense. Yeah, and yet central banks are looking at digital currencies. They're looking at local digital currencies. Whereas, yeah, from what you're saying, that the focus really should be on yes, bring back the bank or let's give it a try. I want both. Bring back the bank or and central bank digital currencies. Right, well, I think central bank digital currencies is is one for another day, isn't it? Because I don't Indeed. quite get. Yep. Well, I know part of your your reasoning behind that is it would be good if they could put money into people's bank accounts easily. Yeah, uh, but there must be more to it than that. But let's let's talk about that another day. We'll leave it there for now. Great to talk, Steve. Good night, mate. Good. And uh, next time, uh, we're going to look at Pareto's principle. Boris Johnson is a big fan of it. So what exactly is it? Who was Pareto? And how does Boris hope to use it? That's next week on the Debunking Economics podcast. With me, Phil Dobby and Steve Keen. See you then. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.